0: So, as Alex said, this is now the final sermon on, in what's basically been a series about the atonement, the atonement. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? So, when he cried out, John 19.30, Tetelestai, it is finished, uh, what did he mean? What did he finish? And as we've seen over the weeks throughout Lent, uh, the witness of the New Testament is that, well, he meant a lot of things. Uh, One, the cross was a decisive battle in which Jesus defeated sin and death. So sin is finished and death is finished. The cross was a ransom payment where the Son of God bought us with his own blood. It was very costly. So our purchase, your purchase, the purchase of your soul is finished. The cross was a kind of replay, or to use Bible-speak, recapitulation. I know this is a kind of word you use every day in your households. This is Fox Chapel, after all. Um, A recapitulation through which we recover what was lost in Adam. So, the road to our recovery is finished and paved. And then the cross was an exchange. Jesus took our curse in exchange for his righteousness. And this is called substitution. Our substitution is finished. Jesus meant all of these things, and he meant a lot more. We've not been pretending to have uh, all four or five definitive points about the atonement in this sermon series. We're just naming a few. There's a lot more we could say. But this morning I want to draw your attention to one theme that in many ways draws all of the others together into one. And it's not a coincidence that we're putting it at the very end on Palm Sunday. And to get at this theme, I want to start with this question. What was Jesus thinking about when he entered Jerusalem? What was Jesus thinking about as he was entering Jerusalem? In our first reading, Matthew 21, we see him entering the city in the manner of like a conquering king. It's like a Roman general riding into the city, right? It's a parade. People are laying their coats on the ground in front of him. They're cutting down branches from trees, most likely palms. That's why we have those little uh, nice things uh, today. No, you don't have to wave it, Alex. Thank you. Um, this is gonna, You're all going to drive me nuts for the rest of this sermon. I know it. Uh, they They're cutting these branches, though, laying them on the road, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means something like, Please, God, save us. Save us. So, this is like a charged triumphal parade. Everybody thinks that Jesus is about to spark an uprising against Rome. Okay? They're not like laying their garments on the ground because they think there's going to be some sort of meditative spiritual event that's about to happen. These guys are ready for war, they're like, let's go. It's time to take over this oppressive government. The last thing on anybody's mind is crucifixion. Almost anybody's mind. Jesus is thinking about crucifixion. How do I know that? I know that because in... The chapter literally right before this, this is Matthew 20, 17, probably like the day before or a couple days before, Jesus and his disciples are walking up toward Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's at the top of this hill. That's why it's often called Mount Zion. So there's a journey up to Jerusalem. Jesus is making it with probably hundreds of his disciples. And he stops along the way, pulls the 12 inner core aside to give them his battle plan. All right? You're going in Jerusalem. You're about to start an insurrection or an uprising, right? You ought to tell him, all right, Peter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the northern district and rally um, all of the peasants there, right? Um, And John, I want you to go down and make sure that you uh, capture this strategic armory. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to take it over, right? He's going to give him his battle plan. So here's the battle plan. Ready? See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. How's that for a battle plan? What was Jesus thinking about as he entered into Jerusalem, as people are throwing their coats and branches on the ground in honor of him as the coming Messiah? He was thinking about his own impending crucifixion. That's what he was thinking about. We can even say, as we look at the scriptures, that Jesus was premeditating the cross. He planned to go to Golgotha, And he actively took steps to carry out this plan. He knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew the politics of the day. He knew what Pilate was like. He knew what Herod was like. He knew the way that the Roman authorities worked. This wasn't his first run in with the different authorities in Jerusalem and the rest of Israel, right? And he knew that if he did the things that he was planning to do, and he said the things that he was planning to say, he knew exactly what was going to happen. They were going to crucify him. Our Lord wasn't a helpless victim. This wasn't some kind of like grand accident. He knew exactly what he was up to. He was premeditated. He was purposeful. And this is really, really key. Because as we go through Holy Week and we remember the events of this one historical week that happened we have to remember that it's not just a bunch of random events that unfolded. This was, we're in some ways getting an insight into the mind of God. This is what he was doing. This is what he was up to. And so this morning, I want to draw your attention to one subtle, tiny, but significant detail in this premeditated, purposeful plan. And that is timing. Timing is everything, right? It's really important. Anyone who plays golf knows that you got to have timing right or, in your, or you're in a load of trouble. Anybody ever play t-ball or actually baseball when they're pitching it, right? You swing at the wrong time, you're not going to hit the ball. Timing is everything. Jesus could have made his journey to Jerusalem at any time that he wanted. There were several different Jewish feasts throughout the year, that would have been really great times for him to come in and make his grand entry. Uh, Pentecost would have been a great time. Pentecost was a kind of harvest festival um, where Israel remembered that God provides their food, not Rome. So what better time to make an anti-imperial message than Pentecost, right? That would have been good. The Feast of Tabernacles wouldn't have been a good time. At Tabernacles, this was like the... um, Anci- the woodstock of the ancient world, right? Without the, without the drugs and all the other stuff, at least we think, um, right? The, the people came to Jerusalem, they camped out in tabernacles, which literally means tents. They camped out in tents. Um, and uh, this was all to remember how for 40 years, the people wandered through the wilderness and God provided for them, What better way to bring in this kingdom of radical trust in God than by coming at tabernacles? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that would have been a great day. That would have been the best day, I think, right? Uh, That's when the priests slaughtered bulls and goats to atone for the sins of the nation. So what better way to say, hey guys, I'm here to atone for your sins than by coming at the Day of Atonement? But Jesus doesn't choose Pentecost, he doesn't choose tabernacles, and he doesn't even choose the Day of Atonement. He chooses Passover. Have you ever wondered why? The Passover was a feast that pointed back to the most significant event in all of Israel's history, by far, the most significant event. The story goes like this, and you may have heard it before. In Sunday school, but for most of us, it's probably been a while. After a number of years of living in Egypt, the people of Israel uh, became numerous and strong. Actually, the text in Exodus uh, mimics the w- the uh, command at the beginning of Genesis. It says they were fruitful and they multiplied, just like God said that the original man and woman should do. Right? They became a great, mighty nation, and this made the Egyptians feel just a little bit threatened. So, like any imperial group, they forced them into slavery. Right? That's what we tend to do when we feel threatened, when we feel scared, is we act out in aggression. So, the Egyptians forced the Hebrew people into slavery, and the people cried out to God because their burden was unbearable. And God raised up a man named Moses. And Moses went in and confronted Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt, and demanded freedom for Israel to go out into the desert so that they could worship Yahweh, their God. And Pharaoh was super cool with this, right? Not so much, right? Uh, he was not okay with letting him go. So there, ext- there ensues this like, extended showdown between Pharaoh and Moses, between the gods of Egypt, and there were many, And the God of Israel, there is one, right? So God's waging war on Egypt. And we see it through this series of plagues in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, right? God turns the water of the Nile River into blood. That's kind of gruesome. He sent infestations of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts, for all of you insect people, Uh, as well as various plagues and diseases, such as one that killed all the livestock, one that caused everyone to get boils all over their skins. There was a crop-killing hailstorm. There was a bout of total darkness that came upon the land. And each of these plagues is directly assaulting different gods in Egypt, right? It's, it's, uh, It's taking on their dominion and just obliterating it. And by the end of all of this, there's an utter social and economic disaster throughout all of the land of Egypt. They are ruined. And yet, in spite of this, Pharaoh would not relent. So God says to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring. One more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After, with, after this one, he will let you go from here. This is the final plague. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Judgment is falling. And yet, Israel is given a way out, right? That's the second lesson uh, that Elizabeth kindly read for us. Uh, They get these very specific instructions. And if they follow them, God says, he will pass over their house. And these are the instructions. Each family is to take an unblemished lamb. By the way, these instructions make no logical sense whatsoever. Doesn't God ask us to do things sometimes that make no logical sense to us whatsoever? And yet, this is what they are told to do. What they are called to is trust and obedience. Take an unblemished lamb. Slaughter it, then paint the blood around the doorframe of your house. That way, when the Lord comes through in judgment, Exodus twelve thirteen, I will see the blood and I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So in one night you have judgment, the judgment of God falling upon all of Egypt. And yet you have Israel that is passed over, and they escape this judgment. And what's more, this judgment proves to be their means of deliverance. And it all happens through the blood of these unblemished Passover lambs. Deliverance comes through a sacrifice. Deliverance comes through blood. And so, and here's the other thing. The lambs are actually more than just a shield from judgment, right? They're not just, it's not just like, oh, well, paint the blood on the doorframe and then I don't care what happens with the rest. No, they're told to, what? Roast the lamb over the fire with unleavened bread, because bread takes a while to rise, right? (laughs) Uh, And God's saying, you need to get out of here fast roast it on the fire, eat it with unleavened bread. It's going to be food to sustain you on the journey, because guess what, Israel? You're leaving tonight. Sometimes God uh, delivers us through the gradual method, but sometimes he doesn't use a gradual method at all. Sometimes you're leaving tonight. So the people are told to roast the lambs on the fire, eat them with unleavened bread, and do it, and then to eat it in the way that people today eat McDonald's, right? Anybody ever eaten McDonald's in your car? This is a safe place. You can all raise your hands. You're a bunch of liars, okay? They say, say, in this manner you shall eat the Passover. With your belt fastened, okay, this is the one exception. Today, with your McDonald's meal, right, it's going to be unfastened. Your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and here's the key. And you shall eat it in haste, right? This is the original fast food. And this event became known as by the Greek phrase. You can all raise your palm branches now, right? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, this this whole event, right? This quick deliverance. You're leaving tonight. This became known uh, later on by the Greek phrase X. Ex- haddos X means out. Hadas means road or way. So the way out, the road out, the exodus, exodus. the exodus. And the, New- the Old Testament writers talk about this event, the exodus, more than any other event in all of Israel's history. This is how, when I say this is the most significant event, I'm not just blowing smoke. This is mentioned more in the Old Testament than any other event, through the Psalms, through the prophets, all over the place. They're recounting the story of the Exodus. And every year the Jews celebrated this Passover meal, just in the same McDonald's-style way, uh, to remember how God was their exodus. He was their way out of slavery and oppression. Year after year after year, they were to remember this. And yet by Jesus's day, they were again enslaved. They were again under foreign oppression. This time, it wasn't Egypt, it was Rome. And again, they were crying out for God to deliver them, just like the Hebrews did in Exodus. And that's why as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds are laying the branches down in front of them, they're crying, Hosanna. They're saying, God, save us. Do it again. Jesus came to do it again. He understood that Israel needed to be uh, delivered from Rome. He got that, but Jesus also understood that the problem was bigger than just Rome. Jesus understood that you can, you can gain the whole world and yet forfeit your own soul. You can rule the world. You can be totally free. You can live in the land of the free and the home of the brave and still be a slave. Jesus didn't go to Israel or to Jerusalem to liberate the people from Pilate and Rome. He had much bigger fish to fry. He was going into Jerusalem to liberate all of us from sin and death, the underlying root problem that was causing all of these other problems that were stemming down, stemming up. Right. So this is why, because he was coming to do this. This is why two thousand years later. Halfway across the, the globe, in a congregation in Fox Chapel, full of a bunch of Gentiles, we are looking back on Jesus' final week, this final week as and we're saying that this event is the single most important moment in our history. That's what this is. This is the single most important event in our history. This is our way out. This is our exodus. And you can see it playing out in people's lives in a million different ways. When you get at the root issues of sin and death that have plagued us from the beginning, then you see freedom crop up in 10,000 different places. I have a friend who found that Jesus to be his only way out of a heroin addiction. And he prayed, Lord, take this away from me or I'm a dead man within a month. And the Lord did. I know a lot of people, and I would count myself in this group, for whom Christ was the way out of despair, for Christ was the one who opened the door to healing from mental illness, from trauma, from deep, deep shame. He was the way out the exodus. I can go on and on and on. I can't come up with enough pastoral metaphors or analogies or examples to spell this all out for you. But when the root condition is taken care of, the symptoms go away. Maybe not all at first, but they start to gradually over time wipe away. I know of so many people for whom Christ has been the way out of abusive relationships, Because he's shown them that there's actually someone who cares for them and gives them dignity. The way out of hopeless grief. And in the end, the way out of death itself. And to be clear, I'm not... I'm not making a metaphor out of the concrete historical event of the Exodus, right? Jesus wasn't making a metaphor out of the concrete historical event of the Exodus. I'm not saying here that we all have our tough little situations in our lives uh, that kind of resemble the Exodus story if you really stretch it and perform the old classic preacher's trick, um, and that the hope of the gospel gives us all a little bit of moral courage to continue, right? That's a powerless message. That's a that's a powerless message. If that was the best I'd have, I'd say, just go fishing, man. I wouldn't be here. (laughs) I'm saying this, that Jesus understood that the whole exodus from Egypt, this monumental deliverance, was just a small foreshadowing of a much greater exodus when God would break the back of sin and death once and for all. So, Uh, And Jesus went to the cross at Passover, not only to signify that he was the one who was going to make this happen, but he went to the cross at Passover to make this happen. That's what he was doing. So he enters Jerusalem. He goes right to the heart of the city, right? As soon as the triumphal parade is over, he goes right into the heart of the city to where? The temple. And he's knocking over tables. He's cleansing the temple. He's saying my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. This makes the authorities really mad. And that's actually, he's not just flipping out here. This is an act of prophetic judgment. He's saying, Israel, you were created for so much more. And then over the next few days, we see this showdown between Jesus and the authorities, not altogether different from the showdown that we saw in Exodus between Moses and Pharaoh. And the tension keeps ratcheting up and ratcheting up and ratcheting up until finally they all decide that he has to go. They're going to kill him. And Jesus knows it. So on the night before his death, he sits down to eat this Passover meal. his friends and at this meal they eat bread and they drink wine you guys remember where they talked about bread and wine in our text right from exodus they didn't talk about bread and wine in our text from exodus i guess they did talk about bread that's fair but those are not the centerpieces of the meal are they Where's the centerpiece of the meal? Jesus and his friends eat bread, and they eat wine, but I'm just wondering, where's the lamb? What about the blood on the doorframe, Jesus? You're supposed to roast the unblemished lamb, buckle your belt, and eat it in haste. That's the key to the Passover. If you don't have a sacrificial lamb, then what do you have? You have judgment, but no deliverance. There's no way out without the sacrificial lamb. There's no Passover without the Paschal lamb. So, so where is it? You, did Matthew miss out on this crucial detail? No, he was a Jewish tax collector. He understood the, the traditions better than anybody. Surely he didn't forget about the Passover lamb when Jesus is sitting there with his friends to eat it. He didn't forget about the Passover lamb. But you never hear it mentioned in this meal. It comes a few chapters later, and I want to read that account to you, and as we do, this is the close of the sermon, I want to stand together and read what Matthew says about the Passover lamb, so let's stand. This is how the Passover lamb is treated in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27. And the soldiers of the governor took, took him to the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And led him away to crucify him. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but he tasted it and would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Amen.